Hello, hello. Welcome into another episode of Blueprint to Canton. I'm here. This is Nelly, by the way, at a Nelly Ticks. I'm here with Austin at Debbie Dietz. How's it going, Austin? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Pretty good. Doing pretty good. Uh, last week, I told Mike Valerie that he was my favorite Debbie analyst, but don't tell him I said that just to make him happy. Um, it's, it's definitely Corey who we're trying to get on the show. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, I did, yeah. I did back to Debbie with Corey last night, actually. Um, and that was fun. I haven't talked with, like, on a podcast with him in probably like two years. Uh, he's always good time. He's very agreeable. Yeah. He doesn't, he like, he has that ability to kind of consider your viewpoint and not be argumentative back, but still kind of like disagree with you a little bit. I think that's a good uh, quality to have with somebody. I get, I run out of patience. <laughs> Yeah, well, maybe he won't be a good fit for this show then, because I, I want to I wanna dispute what he says, and I want him to dispute what I say. So maybe I'll have to see if I can push some buttons there. But uh, one thing is for sure, uh, this is a new rule on the show that we came up with last week, along with rule number one, which we actually broke a bunch last week. Player names, avoid them as much as possible. Rule number two, uh, no Felix on this show, because he doesn't use strategy when he plays campus to Canton. Um, I've, I've seen it. He actually has a huge dartboard in his house and he just puts a blindfold on and he walks like 10 paces across the room and just throws it at the board and whatever he does, he puts like little, you know, the, the stuff up there and whatever it hits is he, it's what he does. It's crazy. Yeah. And he doesn't even use the right subset. He has all the FCS players on the board too, and he can't even draft them. Giovanni McCoy, baby. <laughs> oh, I just bro I broke two rolls in one, one go there. <laughs> uh, we were all thinking it there uh but no cool so the reason why i brought austin on the show here is because i want to talk about campus to canton trades which i feel like are at least for me personally extremely like uh overwhelming because there's so many moving pieces going on in campus to canton leagues you know you have your nfl players you have your college players you have your nfl supplemental picks you have your college supplemental picks and then even like on the college side you have different sort of subcategories of players that you roster so there's so many different values going around and um th th it's tough to get kind of marcus market consensus value on each of these pieces to to kind of weigh if potential trades are fair or not so i want to bring you on austin because i've seen you you've done threads on twitter about trades that you've made you've talked about kind of some trading strategies you've used in the past um so i thought you'd be a, a great person to talk through here so i guess first topic here is the big one uh from my perspective it's cross-league trading meaning trading nfl assets for college assets and vice versa uh, and how you uh, are able to value players in this in this cross league uh, uh, cross league proposition here? Yeah, I think that's kind of like the million dollar question. It's the questions that I think I get DM'd the most to me. Um, you know, I, this NFL player for these college players or whatever. And I I agree with you. I think they can be really overwhelming. Um, and so I think the uh the 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 first thing that i think that i do when i consider a, a cross trade is like what is the purpose of the trade and not allowing the trade to grow with like players and picks and all this stuff so big that either i lose sight of what the point of the trade initially was or the value gets so muddled that i can't tell like realistically whether like 
if I win this deal, where is the win? And if I lose the deal, like where is the loss? Like I think I see people do these trades and ends up being like eight pieces on each side. I'm like, what? Like I'm sure that started somewhere and like just ballooned. But I think those two things I like are the first two things that I think about. I don't know how you feel about that. Like I don't ever want to do more than like three pieces on a side of a trade. Beyond that, I think it's just gotten too big and too difficult to kind of figure it out. Yeah, I'm with you. I think both consciously and subconsciously, I don't like making those trades consciously for the reasons that you said, but also like subconsciously, like massive packages like that essentially just completely change your team. And I don't know. I think for me, at least I get a little bit connected or like, I mean, there's a, there's a human side to this as well. where like, it's tough to be truly like binary and thinking here and truly analytical where like I have a team put together and like, I enjoy the teams that the players are on that team. And if I'm trading a bunch of pieces there, um, it's like you're completely changing the team. So that's actually not a good strategy thing to do. But that is something that I personally can't avoid. Um, But no, I mean, when you break it down into smaller pieces on each side or like less pieces on each side, it's it's much easier to kind of uh, this plus this equals question mark this plus this as opposed to having just a bunch of different pieces on each side um so i guess do you ever trade one nfl player for one college player is is that something that you would do that would be pretty tough for me if i'm following like i have kind of my beginner's guide to trading that i retweet a couple times a year um you know the kind of beginning of the season middle of the season as trading starts picking up and then end of the season and my four my four rules that I always say, and I, I admittedly sometimes do break these, but I think generally I'm keeping them in mind when I'm making a deal. The first one is that I never trade an NFL stud for college players only. I think, you know, stud for our purposes is probably a top, I don't know, like 36 player overall in the NFL. Then after that, maybe you can debate a guy here or there. But I think, you know, especially with starting quarterbacks, but but really any position, you know, I don't want to just trade a, a an NFL stud for college players um, because if those college players don't end up working out, um, you know, you've just hemorrhaged value like all over the place. So I, I don't like doing that. Rule number two is if I'm trading an NFL piece for a college piece, kind of try to figure out like in dynasty mode, you know, Jonathan Taylor, is, is he worth two firsts? Is he worth, you know, two firsts and a second, you know, whatever that is. And then I kind of go find players that kind of, I think would have those values in a rookie draft if once, once they get there. So, you know, uh, Jonathan Taylor for, for two firsts, you know, you're looking for Malik neighbors and um, uh, Raheem Sanders or something. Maybe that's the trade you make or something like that. And that's, you know, essentially the value there rule three um, CFF players, like, players that I think only have CFF value and you can, you know, debate here or there. I I would have said tank Dell probably fit in that category a year ago. So sometimes you're right. Sometimes you're wrong, but I would say I only ever move those players for other college players or supplemental picks, or I only acquire those kind of players for those kinds of uh, value. Just because again, like a CFF only player, like, you know, the expiration date, you know, when the retirement is coming and if, you know, you get one or two years, and I think CFF in general, there's 133 teams. Like there's just more uh, players to be found on that side of things. Uh, and then rule four is just kind of setting your league's market and getting out ahead of, of the trade market, which is actually, I have a league this year already where I already made two or three trades. And then this week the, the chat blew up with like, hey, I'm, I'm blowing up my roster. And I, I've already situated my team. I made one more deal this week just to kind of finish it off. But that was it. Like I, I think I'm already set. So I think those are the four rules I follow. 
Um, so I, th I think that kind of specifically answered your question, but those are kind of things that I'm thinking about uh, initially as I'm thinking through a deal. I love the second point that you made, the the sort of standardizing to regular dynasty pick values. That's something that I always try and do as well, because that is values. Those are values that we're much more comfortable with uh, using uh, first round picks as opposed to Raheem Sanders is like it's much easier to kind of make that comparison. Um, something I do want to caution on there is a pick is much more insulated than a player. Yes. Yes. Because the first-round pick is always going to be a first-round pick. Raheem Sanders or Malik Neighbors might not always be a first-round pick just because they are now. So something that I always talk like, about, like, the hit-by-the-bus theory. Like, yeah. Bijan Robinson could have gotten hit by a bus the week after he got drafted in the NFL, you know, and then like that Bijan Robinson no longer has value. The 101, yeah, you just pivot, and you have C.J. Stroud or Anthony Richardson or Jameer Gibbs or whoever else you wanted there. So, yeah, that, that's what we all, the term we always use on, on campus life, I think, is kind of – fun and ridiculous but it makes sense yeah no it makes perfect sense i love that term i'm gonna start using that but so like it, it, adding that context to this like i almost 1.5x the the college side value so if i think jonathan taylor in that situation is worth two first i'm trying to get three like three first equivalent players at a minimum honestly and and i don't think that that is necessarily market consensus it's tough to for sure but i think that that uh in a lot of instances that will be seen as overvaluing the nfl side versus the college side um and i think you'll struggle to move jonathan taylor for three three plus first equivalent round uh player values um so i guess it, in conclusion there it is tough to make these deals to get the true market value if you're trying to get college players. Now, conversely, if you have these college players, it might be worth I, – like I, I much more support taking those college players, taking Malik Neighbors and Raheem Sanders, and making that offer for John Taylor because – I guess the point I'm trying to make is NFL players are almost always undervalued in this situation because Devi prospects get viewed at get viewed with such rose colored glasses, such positivity uh, without factoring the hit by bus outcome or even the not hit by bus outcome, but the maybe just not that good at football, or maybe we're just not as great at, as evaluating players as we think we are, which no, I mean, the NFL stinks at it too. So like, it, it's really hard. Um, so I have, I have a C2C league. It's uh, it's a, it's a little funky. It's like 20 teams. And there's like two copy on the NFL side. So that, that complicates things a little bit. But I in that league, I have basically almost traded every single good NFL prospect that I've had as they once they declare for NFL pieces. And like I have definitely hemorrhaged some value long term. Um, I'm going to I'm not going to name names because like we're trying not to name as many names as possible on the show. But like think about the top 12 dynasty receivers right now. I probably traded four of them away over the past couple of years. But I had a two year window where I was definitely the best NFL team and got a little unlucky. But I think like it definitely like I got all the that I extracted all the value from college. I could out of them, moved them at that point for more established value. And then it, it didn't end up working out for me in terms of winning the NFL side. But it definitely was more insulated value. And sure, I lost, you know, my team would be a, a mega team right now, but I try not to think about it because I did have that two-year run that was pretty strong. 
Yeah, I think that's a great point. And and you will get burned sometimes. You know, you might sell a player who becomes a stud and, and long term you can look back and you'll undersell them. But I think more times than not, uh, you'll end up winning the deal value wise because more players don't pan out than we realize. And um, I mean, the more you make these trades and you lessen the variance by adding just more volume to the to the theory, um, the more you'll you'll profit off of it. Um, let's let's pivot here to talking about uh, supplemental picks and their values. I guess more specifically here the college supplemental picks because NFL supplemental picks have next to no value other than maybe the top couple. Um, I guess with your supplemental picks, are you actively buying them? Are you actively selling them? And and what sort of assets are you moving for them? Yeah, we talked a little bit, I think last time I was on, we were talking about, you know, kind of maneuvering once the season starts and like being honest about your roster and kind of in, after a week or two, like I think I really know, like I already kind of had an impression of the team coming into the season. And if it's, you know, basically f- fulfilled what I thought it was, then, then you know, maybe it makes me a buyer, maybe it makes me a seller. So I do, I, I think that it really does vary based on team, how I've done so far this year with that roster. Um and I know we also talked about this last week, and I still have no data to back this up. I like I don't know whether we as like everybody overvalue supplemental picks or undervalues them. Like I don't know if we have a good approximate value for supplemental picks yet. Like I just because I think it's really hard. Like for dynasty rookie picks, we sometimes are looking at these classes from three or four years in advance. Like we've had a long time to kind of stew on these values, think about them. The class kind of shapes up over a, a longer period of time. Like I think even if I was paying attention to all these high schoolers as high school freshmen and then watching them develop over four years, I still would not have a great feel for like how, you know, really what level of player they are at the end of the day. Like we, we, I think we do a, a decent job, but like you're really, really guessing with a lot of these guys. So I think it does make, those picks kind of risky but i also think if you can just stack enough of them like you're you're i mean unless you're just horribly unlucky you're gonna hit a couple of them yeah i i think the way i look at it when you break it down to like a one player for a supplemental trade and, and one player being a college player um I really break it down as, would I draft this player with this pick if they were available in next year's supplemental draft? I think that's the simplest way to kind of determine a value. You know, the first, it, you don't even need to know who the incoming freshmen are. You don't need to know who the like the players will be in next year's supplemental. There's kind of a guide, right? The first couple rounds, you get the five-star freshmen. The next couple rounds after that, you've got the the high four stars and the best heavy prospects left. Then next few rounds after that, you start hitting CFF guys and uh, that guys like the elite CFF guys and guys that will last for a few years. Um, and so when, when I'm trading for those picks or I'm selling those picks, I'm thinking um, I'm thinking about if the player involved in the deal would be worth that pick value. And I, I that's a pretty simple concept, but I, I don't think it's something that's really done because it's it, it's a little bit novice to not novice, but it's new to to frame the supplemental drafts that way. I feel like, um, but 
um, like if you're trading for a, a, a CFF guy, like think about where you would take them. You probably wouldn't take them in the first two rounds of the pick. So if someone's offering you a first or second round supplemental pick for a CFF only guy, then that's probably a good deal to make. Yeah, I do think it's tough because in season, I think a bad team, as long as the player is not running out of eligibility completely, has some leverage um in terms of you know i i don't have to sell to you like you know you're you're the guy who wants you know in top 12 cff wide receiver here um so i do think it's like if i'm i'm gonna give away all my secrets if i'm selling i'm trying to get a second or a third for like a a a really good cff option if i'm buying i'm trying to spend a fourth or a fifth like is really and i'll you know creep it forward or backward either way uh, on either side kind of depending on each league a little bit different. Um, but those are kind of like the parameters that I try to live by. Like I, on, on my teams that are competing right now, I'm, I'm going around to bad teams and offering, you know, a fourth, a fourth for, um, I don't know, like, like a top 15 wide receiver or, you know, a third for like a top uh, CFF only running back that has, you know, one or two years left. Like it's tough to buy, you know, a freshman breakout running back at that price. You, you can't, um, I think, you know, a certain running back up uh, in Minnesota uh, that we're trying not to say names uh, comes to mind right away. You can't, can't buy him, but you could buy um, a, uh, a running back at Toledo, for instance, who I think uh, is going to have a hot run down the stretch here for that price. So it, it does kind of it, it, it does vary a little bit for sure. Yeah, two thoughts here. One, uh, in like an instance where it's close, I think Ty goes to the current player because uh, while picks are more insulated, picks aren't currently scoring you points. So if your goal is to score points, then the pick is going or the tie is going to go to the asset that's going to give you those current points. Like you don't have to wait a year to get the pick to then draft a CFF asset. You just have it now. Um, so I think that's important to keep in mind. I guess the other thing I want to bring up, and this is, I would say, adjacent to this, is a strategy that uh, I don't see employed much at all is trading for waiver claims whether that's directly, I, I can't remember. I've done in the past, and I can't remember if that's something you can do directly on fan tracks or if it's just more of a, hey, I'll trade you for this waiver claim. Uh, just use it for me. I, I've done that in the past, I'm pretty sure. And the players that you can get on waivers, especially this is more specifically specifically towards like four claim leagues. The players that you can get on waivers are like worth probably a third or like a waiver claim is probably worth a third or a fourth round supplemental pick. I um, agree. Especially toward the end of the season when everyone's kind of out, like maybe there's one or two claims like floating around in the league. Yeah. There's usually some guy that breaks out week seven that nobody can pick up and that guy can be pretty valuable. Yeah. And, and I guess for me in some leagues that I'm in, like there are guys who just don't really use their claims. It's not a part of their, it's not a part of their strategy or their focus, I guess it's, I mean, it's, waiver claims are crucial to winning leagues in my opinion, but some people, it, it takes time, right? So uh, some trade, people don't use them. Do you ever trade for uh fob at all? Cause I have seen some leagues that allow that too. And I think that, you know, similarly, you know, if you can't put in $0 bids and, or, or, and, or there's, you know, a limit and someone doesn't use all theirs, I think that can be pretty valuable too. Yeah. Uh, specifically in leagues where there were like waiver weeks and there were like, great Debbie players that emerged. Um, 
I I have traded for Pat Tra- for Fab. Trade for ten bucks or something to empty the clip or, or something. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. Like uh, I guess two years ago, not saying names, but Kenny Pickett was available on waivers, and I traded a couple extra dollars to make sure that I would be able to to get him. I guess you have to be careful with that one because if it's a really obvious guy and you do it too early before the waiver claim, then if you trade for ten dollars, someone can go trade for eleven. So yeah, and I guess that is a five. I've never really tried to play that game, but it could be. yeah, sneak it in at the eleventh hour. Yeah. Um, but um, I guess the last point I wanted to make on the trading for waiver claims is like it's a good proposition to the guy who's not using their waiver claims either. Cause they get a pick for free if they were never planning on using their waiver claim. Um, so that's something worth exploring. I would say, I think, I think, I, I mean, go, if you're in a four claim league, like go and look at your waivers. There are, if I go and do that, there are like 20 people that I would add over, over players at the bottom of my roster easily, if not more. I think it's really important to realize the fact, like if it's not an unlimited waiver league where like you don't, you can do $0 bids or, or something like that, that the, the, like the picks themselves, like if you get, you know, your 15 every year and those, and, and like the, the limited waiver ads you get are so valuable because those are the only ways to turn your roster. Like you, th- like if you've got a bad roster you should be trying to load up on as many waiver ads and picks as you can, because that's the only way to to, to transform the roster like year over year. Like it, it's really tough to emphasize to people enough how like 15 picks is a 30 year roster. That sounds like a lot, but I definitely had a few leagues this year that I would have happily cut six more guys. But like I don't because, you know, what am I going to do with six empty roster spots? Like, you know, I, I get 15 picks and then I have my four waiver ads. That leaves two roster spots at least like I, I can't do anything with. So I think, especially in a league where my team is bad, I'm even fine. And in a lot of trades, like I'll do, sure, I'll trade you my second. Can I get your 15th back or your 14th back? Just something to be able to kind of rotate that roster so I'm not like sitting there with bad players on my team that you know, didn't pan out. And now I'm kind of, you know, I, I have to decide between three bad players and keep two of them because my, my team just, you know, I don't have enough picks. That's actually a really good point. I I always try and get a pick back if I give up a pick, a later pick. Like, I don't think, like, 12 to 15th round supplemental picks are, like, maybe the most underrated, undervalued asset in, in C2C because if you, there's not that much difference between a 15th round pick and, like, a uh, like a sixth round pick. Like there really isn't. There's just a, probably a little bit more confidence in a CFF asset or a little bit more confidence in a future or in, in a freshman. But like when you break it down macro, like uh, on a macro level, like those players don't hit at a much higher rate. Like it's, you're really shooting at darts. You're just maybe a little bit further away from the dartboard. Um, I didn't say that phrase correctly but you you get the point um so yeah like honestly if you have a bad team i would rather get a bunch of like if you're if you're trading for a fifth i'd rather get like i don't know a 13th 14th 15th and and it helps you turn that roster like you should never have empty roster spots so if you ever are in the position where you have a bunch of players leaving your roster and you don't have the picks to fill that, like that's something that you absolutely should address and, and get a bunch of back-end picks just to make sure that you're always filling the roster. I agree. And that's why I sit there and I advocate pretty heavily if you are in supplemental drafts and obviously, you know, bank this away for nine months from now, 
Um, they like there are teams in your league that just will have like full rosters with four rounds left. And usually I if I like I'll go through everybody's roster like the day before the draft is supposed to start and look and see how many people are kind of above whatever picks they have left. And then I'll cut some extra guys off my roster because in most, you know, Fantrax doesn't let you, if I'm your, the commission, you ask me, I tell you to F off. Like, I'm not going to let you cut guys at the end so you can go trade for picks. So I'll cut an extra three or four guys. And then I'll go out and say, you know, you, you can't use your next three picks, trade you my 12th next year for your 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th or whatever. And they'll usually are in a men. It's kind of a win-win. So um, I think that's a fun thing to do too. That's not, you know, applicable year round, but I think is um, a good way to, again, turn over, uh, a bad roster or a bad back end of a roster. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's something that you can do during the draft, but you could probably get it for even cheaper kind of ahead of time. If you do some diligence to figure out uh, who's going to have those extra picks. Um, all right, let's move on here. I want to talk. I, I know Austin, you've talked a lot about your, your year one zero theory um, and how that provides insight into um, specifically wide receivers um, hitting after the, the first year. Basically, if they do nothing, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's if they do nothing, and by doing nothing, I mean there's a bunch of low thresholds and a bunch of different statistical categories. If they don't meet any of those thresholds, uh, then the chances of them being successful, uh, being a successful Devi asset are astronomically low. Yeah, and it's like it's a pretty big difference. I think for like a top twenty-four season, the difference is like two and a half percent versus like seventeen percent. Like that's you know the seventeen percent doesn't seem like a lot, but I mean when we're talking five, six times as much of a chance. Like I think that's pretty significant, and I think it's it's a, just a good way to to weed out the players that aren't really probably going to make it. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're good, as I like if you, if you do hit them, but if if you don't, it means you're probably bad essentially. And we actually, I talked a little bit with Mike about it last week, but it makes sense inherently because if you're going to be someone who has a big role in years two and three of your college career, you're like, there's steps that you take in your career. Like you don't just, you don't go from doing nothing to being the guy on offense. Like you kind of work your way up. Um, that might be quickly, that might be slowly, but if you don't even get started your freshman year, it's a, it's a super uphill battle. Um, but I guess at the, at what point in the season, if at any point in the season, do you start projecting a, Z, a year one zero on a player and maybe moving off of them and trading them away to get a reroll? Yeah, it kind of has to happen. Like as more people get a little more familiar with this topic, I think it almost creeps it forward a little more every year. Uh, but I think that it, like if you're playing in a league with because we always take for granted, like I'm playing like that league of record league that we're in that we were talking about before the show. Like it's a bunch of like very good C2C players in the industry. Like those guys know what's going on. They know who's playing. They know who's not playing. Like you can't really pull one over on them. But for like the general league, like I'm sure there's plenty of leagues out there with your your league mates have never heard of campuscant.com. They've never heard of the year one zero theory. They wouldn't know me from anybody if they saw me on the subway. So I think the non-con is a really good time to, to as kind of a cutoff to sit down, look at the rest of the schedule and look at snaps so far on a weekly basis and kind of assess. Cause I think really like if a guy didn't really play at all during the non-conference and they're at, they're at Ole Miss or something, what, why would they start playing more against sec opposition than they did against, you know, North South Eastern university or, you know, like central Missouri or, um, 
Amish school for the blind. Like those are the kind of schools that these guys get in and they can break the threshold in one game or you put up 80 yards in the second half. And then at that point, you know, 20 yards, I, I, you know, so I think somebody can get 20 yards in, in 11 games. So I'm looking at snap counts now for the past couple weeks for receivers. And I know we're not supposed to do names, but like guys like jury on Dickey at Oregon is not playing at all basically. And they have been in blowouts every week. Like that makes that that signals to me that they aren't prepared to play him really very much at all this season. That's a big sell for me. Um, so I think it's never too early, but I think once you start getting through these cupcake matchups and there's not a lot of them left, that's when you really got to start coming to grips with like, okay, I need to move this guy because he might be dust at the end of the season if this continues. And, and just I would rather be too aggressive getting rid of them than get holding get stuck holding the bag at the end of the season. I think there's a lot of different ways you can shift them for value without. Um, advertising like fire, fire, like I'm, I'm trying to get rid of this guy. Yeah. Uh, so let's let's put that into context. Let's say you draft a wide receiver in the second round of a supplemental draft. You go through the non non con schedule, and he has not played a snap yet. Uh, how cheap would you be willing to sell him for a, a supplemental pick the following year? A sub pick is hard because I think if you just approach somebody with a uh, what you consider a descending or declining asset and try to offer them for basically roughly the same value just acquired, the other person is probably like, mm, why, why are you trying to give me this back when like you just bought this for this price? Like it, that doesn't necessarily make sense to me. So I would try if I'm doing it for pick, like for a supplemental pick, I am trying to get as close to the value. If I spent a second last year, like maybe I would take a third back if I had to, but I would be shooting for an equivalent pick. I think the better way to get rid of them is either to shift, um, like, com- like I, my favorite way is to combine them with another legitimate Debbie asset for an NFL piece because it looks like a two for one to the other person. But if you're pretty sure it's the one of those two, just like is dust in two months. I think that's a nice way where they're like, wow, I'm getting, you know, a, a five-star receiver and this guy who's projected to be a top 50 NFL draft pick next year. Like, yeah, that seems like a good deal. And then you get to the end of the season and, you know, they're buried on a depth chart somewhere. That's my favorite way to get rid of some of these guys. I think that's the easiest. Um, and then I think maybe as like a, a really high-end CFF asset, asset that maybe has – like fringy Debbie potential um, would be kind of like my, my last approach for it. Yeah. I mean, I, I like both of those ideas, the the NFL one specifically. I mean, that's, that's a fantastic strategy um, because it's less like direct of just trying to get rid of this guy. Yeah. I, I think it's really hard to sell players like that. Like, like obvious, obviously not doing well like give me something just for this player i think that like is just really tough to do yeah it's kind of interesting i feel like if you go out there and you try and buy an nfl player the person receiving the college players would try and sell themselves on the college players as to why they why they should take it as opposed to like if you're doing the college player for picks i think it'll be viewed opposite it's like well this is a future college player and they'll try and um try and talk themselves out of it. I don't know. That's just, I feel like innately that's how people respond to, to those types of offers, which, which makes sense uh, as to why you might be able to get better values. If you're essentially trying to trade up using it as a throw in. And your league mates either may not know about the year one zero theory. They might think it's a bunch of bull crap. So 
Um, you know, they might not even care that that you know Dickey didn't play it all this year. He's six three and runs a four four. And he's at Oregon. That's great. That's a good prospect. Or was we, I think, probably know as much as we can know something that he probably isn't a very good prospect. And we can do that pretty quickly, which I think is handy. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's a honestly, I think I'm gonna go through all my rosters uh with potential year one zeros and, and attempt that. Uh, and I which know, I guess uh, go ahead. I know we try not to use names at all, but just to use an example of a trade that I did this week to get rid of Brandon Innes. So I did Innes and a mid-supplemental pick for Jamari Thrash. Shift off Innes. It's a team that's competing. Innes hasn't looked very good. Thrash is probably a top 10 CFF wide receiver rest of season, more or less. And there could be some senior bowl has been, you know, tweeting about him. You know, he could go there and, and go in the third or fourth round or something. So I, that's the kind of move that I'm shifting off where I'm getting back, you know, some pretty good insulated value and, you know, that could turn out to really be nothing for the other guy in six weeks time. Yeah, no, I, I like that a lot. I guess this is not a, uh, this wasn't on necessarily the plan to top of, talk about, but it comes up based off of that. I saw a comment in the campus to Canton discord. I, I don't remember when exactly earlier this week, uh, but it was someone who had a strong roster on both sides, uh, strong college side, strong NFL side. Uh, and they were asking about, ditching one side to go all in on the other side uh, to make moves to strengthen the one side that much more uh, at the expense of the other side. Um, is that something that you would advocate for? Like, is that something you would support or would you support staying put and staying strong on both sides? It's pretty tough. I have one or two teams that are in a similar boat this year and I would prefer not to shift i think i'd rather try to push both sides because for the nfl especially i think we talked about this last time i was on too like get just get to the playoffs in the nfl side and the margins like the scoring ranges are so much tighter that i think anything can kind of happen on a given week if you're going to be like the fifth place team on your college side i think those scoring margins tend to be way wider and i think the odds generally of kind of you know the last team that sneaks into the playoffs wins the cff side is seems to be less overall so I would, you know, if I'm just a playoff team on both sides, you know, maybe I'm okay ditching some college stuff to to push on the NFL side. But really, I'm fine. Like, you know, it's lottery, lottery ticket, buy a ticket, get to the the final drawing, and then see if if you can uh, get some cash back. But I understand, um, you know, if it's you know, if you just want to guarantee yourself probably some money, and, you know, not guarantee, but you know, you know, increase your odds of probably getting money on one side then I get it, you know, just kind of shifting all to one side. But I don't, in general, I don't like shifting like all in on one side or the other. Uh, that's probably a different topic for a different day. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I think the ultimate goal in Campus to Can is to be able to do that exact thing, to be strong on both sides, right? Like, I don't know if, I know there was discussion at some point of what to call it when you win on both sides. I don't know if there was ever a conclusion there as to what to call it, but I mean, I think ultimately that's the goal, right? If you can, if you win your college side and the NFL side, like you just dominated your league in all facets. And I, I think, at least from from my perspective, that's that's what I strive for. So I guess my answer to the question would be no. If you're strong on both sides, and of course there are caveats. If you're not actually that strong, then maybe you're not. Maybe you're a pretender, not a contender. But if you're a contender on both sides, don't don't sacrifice a true contender just to make your other contender a little bit more of a contender 
Especially because there's risk in fortifying a lineup, especially this early in the season. Like I definitely recognize that, for instance, in a league where I had a pretty good team, but I had I was short on running backs. I bought Nick Chubb after week one for like a pretty hefty price. And now like I'm out Nick Chubb maybe for forever. Um, and now I'm just stuck with bad running backs again. So I think there is risk and you know, you move some Debbie assets for some NFL stuff and then two of those guys get injured and you're just back to the drawing board and now you're bad on both sides. Like that can definitely happen too. So I think um, more things would have to go wrong if you're truly strong on both sides for you not to get anything out of that season. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. I, th- I mean, with, I, I think if you're going to make moves as well, like I don't think, I know you've talked about it on the college side, uh, knowing early when you're a contender, but I think the NFL side's a little bit different. Um, so, like, if you're gonna make a push on the NFL side, maybe wait a little bit to do that. That's that's kind of where I stand on in regular dynasty as well. I think waiting is worth maybe paying a little bit more. It's a good point. Um, it's a really good point. Yeah. But okay, cool. Um, covered everything I wanted to talk about here, trading wise. I guess is there any last thoughts on trading that that you want to bring up that that you weren't able to thus far? Uh, no, I mean, I think the only other comment that I would make is that I think um, I, I think a, a the the winning strategy on college, if you can manage it, um, is to stack a lot of a lot of supplemental picks in one year. Because I think it's really hard to miss on a lot of picks. Um, so if you can, if you like, in my leagues, I try to compete in every league I'm in. I think that's like for college. I think that's generally smart because you can turn the roster so hard every year that it just like doesn't make sense to to avoid it. But I think if you if you're committing to not winning this year, being able to move off a bunch of guys for for picks next year and being able like I think that really sets you up the next year for success. Like I know that sounds like very novel and kind of obvious and stupid, but like I really think that just acquire like even if again you're trading you know, a, a low end RB three or something, someone just needs some running back depth and you get a, a 10th out of them or something like that. Like stacking those picks can really make a huge difference the next year. So I think um, if you're unsure, or you're leaning, you know, not, not competing this year, just go, go and get as many of those picks as you can. I think that's just the, the, the best way. And you can turn up some real gems for, for long-term that way. Yeah. And even like, if you're getting like super late supplementals, it's still more than you. If your if your team is bad and you're trading uh, some super senior wide receiver for a twelfth round pick, that twelfth round pick will provide you, or at least give you the opportunity to to provide you value. Whereas the the wide receiver is doing you nothing because he's going to graduate and be irrelevant. Um, it's like knowing when Tom Brady was going to retire and sitting on him anyway with like exactly. a team. Like you know, you know when this guy's retiring. Like you you have no more of him. So, like, just knowing that deadline's there, I think is very helpful in terms of making decisions. 100%. Well, thank you, Austin, for coming on. I appreciate it. Um, I think think as long as we're able to, I'm going to probably try and have you on semi-regularly because you have a lot of good thoughts here. Um, um, so, so, yeah, I appreciate it. You said that into a microphone for me to have a recording of. Man, that was, that was risky. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I guess I do have autonomy to just wipe this whole recording after this. So <laughs> we'll see if that happens. Um, but uh, appreciate each and every one of you for listening. As always, any sort of feedback, thoughts, questions, please always feel free to reach out. 
um we'll always love to talk strategy and even like future podcast uh topics discussions questions um we can definitely touch on them because there's so many avenues that we can go here um so yeah thanks for listening have a good one talk to you later